September 4th, 2022. This morning's class I titled Torah of Heaven in this World. Of course, it's a reference to a Torah min Hashemaim, which we often reference and uh, talk about. It's moreover a reference to the Gemara and Masechet Bava which is in the first source, uh, which has that famous expression from the Pasuk at the end of Sefer Devarim of Loba Shamaimhi, that the Torah is no longer in the heavens. But really what I'd like to address, and you'll hopefully bear with me as I bring you through it, is a general issue which we won't get too detailed on, but we'll touch upon some of the basic details and then develop one particular one, and it's the following. When it comes to halakha, uh, there was and continues to be a debate, a hot debate, and that is how could and should halakha be determined with regards to textual ev evidence? I'm going to base many of my piskei halacha, as will you, as will the many poskim that are alive and will be alive, based on sources. What sources are part of our canon of halacha? So, of course, we know many of the basics and uh, classics, Harambam and Shohanaruch and Rosh and Rif and so forth. Uh, but what about the mystical sources that exist? And I refer specifically to uh, the earlier ones like Zohar and the later ones like the, the Kitavim, the written works of Arizar, Bitzhak Luria, his students, Marhu and many others. I, I refer as well to uh, mystical thought and applications in the last... 100, 200 years with regards to determining halacha. Should there be a division between the world of mystical thought, Kabbalah, and halacha? Is nigle to be separated from nistar with regards to what we do? And I say it's a hot debate and an often discussed issue because someone like Hacham Vadia Yosef, specifically fought this battle. We discussed this on several other occasions we won't touch on pretty much any of the details and specifics with regards to that. But what I will tell you is the following. For many years, for decades, if not hundreds of years upon hundreds of years, both the Sephardic and the Ashkenazic world determined in one way or another much of what they did based on mystical thought and sources. Which means to say, I mean, just to take one of the more famous examples, Joe, I'm very inclusive here. Um, one of the more famous examples is uh, wearing tefillin on Hola Mo'ed. It happens to be over there. There's a dispute between Ashkenazim and Sfaradim, at least historically. But Sfaradim, ultimately speaking, all the way back to the time of Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo and his Beit Yosef, he determined that dispute, which was a long-standing one, never explicit in the Gemara, whether it's appropriate to wear tefillin on Hola Mo'ed, based on the words of a passage that he found in Zohar. Uh, but I refer to many other situations which uh, occur all the time uh, in which we follow, for better or for worse, uh, not the nigle sources, not the sources that we'd have in the traditional poskim whose names I just mentioned, but rather a minhag, a practice, a, a, a style, a way of arizal, of Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, of his adherents, and Chacham Yosef, in many of those circumstances, not all of them, sought to change that, to rectify and to say that's not how we determine halacha. He would cite this first source, Lo Bashamaimi, Torah is not determined based on the heavens. What was he referring to when he referred to the mystical side of halacha or of thought in Judaism as Shamaim? Well, much of the authority, at least historically, of Zohar and afterwards of Arizal is the revelations from heaven that are mentioned therein. Whereas Zohar mentions many circumstances, so stories, and situations 
teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students, having revelations, heavenly revelations, revelations from souls that departed, and much of the authority that's given to the work and to uh, the treatise known as uh, Sefer Hazor is because of those revelations. Arizar Haqluria, who was a contemporary of Maran of Rabbi Yosef Karo in 16th century Tsefat, he had what was known as Gilui Eliyahu Hanavi. Uh, he had revelations from Eliyahu, and much of his authority, both in thought as well as in practice, was based on those revelations. So Hacham of Adya Yosef and many others, what's that? Came to him in a dream of some sort. Listen, uh, Ronnie, we'll have to bear with it because what I'm telling you is much of what you do, not all, much of what you do is based on those revelations. Now, for better or for worse, that's the reality. Uh, what we've discussed in the past is once that is the reality, it's very difficult to uproot that because halakha is very much determined by what becomes the norm. And for one reason or another, many practices that were based on dreams and the like uh, became the norm. Hard to determine afterwards a way to diverge from that. Hacham Vadya Yosef, as we've discussed, did set out a method and was successful in many circumstances in changing the norm. Uh, but what I want to talk about is in the circumstances where we have and continue to, again, I say for better or for worse, in my opinion, I think it's beautiful. The origins of circumstances and what we do is less for me a concern of than what I can take away from this experience in this moment. What does halakha mean to you? How can I appreciate what I'm doing? But now tracing back its history, I just want to understand the mechanics because if there's something explicitly wrong, not that we can debate it and there's two ways to this, but explicitly wrong. If the halakha is lo bashamaymi, that we don't determine law based on heavenly voices or revelations, well then we should be uprooting anything and everything which is based upon that, right? You understand the difference. In other words, if it's, well, it's not your flavor, but it happens to be the reality, there are two ways of looking at it. I understand halakha as such. We've spent much time determining and explaining this as what's practiced, the halikha of halakha is what determines the halakha. But if it's against the methodology, if I were to come in and to propose a whole new methodology which runs counter to anything and everything we've known, well then that's something that even if I've somehow been able to sway a lot of people into believing me, we should be uprooting that. It's the claim in several circumstances of someone like Hacham Ovadia Yosef. What's the counterclaim? How do you rationalize doing differently? Maybe we shouldn't. Yes, Sammy. Yosef also get revelations in dreams? said he made his dreams? So, an interesting question. So, I'm going to. We did a, a full class, it was during COVID and on Zoom, on the Magid Mesharim of Yosef Karo. What we made certain and clear over the course of that class was that although he has this separate work called Magid Mesharim, it will never find its way into his Beit Yosef. None of, aside from one or two circumstances which weren't to him, he's reporting of what was written elsewhere in terms of a dream or a circumstance, nothing that was ever, quote, revealed to him in a dream or in any of these revelations ever become standardized halakha for him. It's mentioned by many of the poskim as well. If he did it, maybe it's a midat hasidut, maybe it's a, a way of piety, it's never mainstreamed in that respect. Yes, he was certainly uh, interested in the mystical world. He, to a certain extent, he followed, we're not going to get into the specifics, oftentimes the approach of Radvaz that Nigle trumps Nistar, but Nistar has a role, 
question really is, how does Nistar play any role if we have this principle of lo So that's really what I'd like to address. And by so doing, I'd like to, hopefully, with your permission, develop a certain perspective on what it is when we approach halacha, when we approach Torah. And so we'll begin with the first source. It's a well-known Gemara in Masechet Bava Metziah. We've reviewed it on many occasions in many different uh, contexts and venues. It's on Dafnun Tetamudbet. It's the famous story of Tanur Shel Achnai. I remember the first time I was taught this, it was in summer camp by Rabbi Richter. I remember he taught us this. He put on a whole show and skit for us. But anyway, I'm going to very briefly tell you the Gemara without reading the specifics inside because uh, for our purposes, the punchline is more important than the lead-up, although on other occasions, the lead-up is very significant. There was a mahlok at the Gemara tells about a particular um, ritual impurity or status of an oven, whether it's susceptible to impurity, whether it's mikabel tumah or not. I don't need to and don't want to get into the specifics, although we can. And when I teach in the school, we get into the specifics because we have to understand every detail. But this time, not the necessity. Uh, so there was a mahlok. Rabbi Ezer was on the one hand with his opinion, and the vast majority of rabbis opposed the opinion of Rabbi Ezer. Rabbi Ezer was interested in proving his point that he's right. So in order to prove his point, he begins to predict and then see realized miracles the stream which was flowing in one direction, if the halachas like me, he says, will go in the other direction, and so it is. The walls of the midrash will fall down if the halachas like me, and they begin to fall down until Rabbi Yoshua gets up and cries out, please don't do that to us, but we see there's a certain effect in that respect, and so on and so forth, until the last miraculous occurrence that, that takes place is that Abili Ezer says, if the halakha is like me, a heavenly voice, a batkol, will emanate, will come out, and will declare that halakha is like me. And so it was. The rabbi is dumbfounded, stunned, don't know how to respond. Keep in mind, the principle of law throughout the Talmud is generally speaking, we go based on majority view here, so Bili Ezer running against the majority, effectively stating that against our old methodology, I should be the winning voice because I have the heavens on my side, says the Gemara, uh, says the Gemara, Ahmad Rabbi Yoshua, three lines from the bottom, Al Raglav Rabbi Yoshua steps up, stands up, the Amar, Lo Bashamaimhi. And he cites a pasuk, which in context is actually just words of inspiration. God turns to us, Moshe reports this at the end of Sefer Devarim. He tells us, you should know, the Torah is not in the heavens, it's not so distant from you. The words of Torah are actually very close to you, they're close to your heart, there's something intuitive and innate to you, you can achieve master, uh, mastery in Torah. But in this context, the Dirashan, those words is, what does it mean when he said, Rabbi Yoshua, in countering the claim of Rabbi Eliezer, since the Torah tells us the majority is what determines law, therefore the heavenly voices were once effective back at Har Sinai. They no longer, it sounds like from this Gemara, should play any role in determining normative practice with regards to halakha. Rather, the majority ruling and determination should. When you say that Pasuk is inspirational, I think it's very practical. It's not that difficult. Maybe Moshe is hinting at a further 
Kabbalistic reason. Don't look so far. It's, it's, it's very simple. Oh, I don't. Inspira- inspirational doesn't need to be not simple. It's quite simple. That's his point to them. His point is this is not as hard as as you believe it is. Don't go into the heaven. Okay, it's the way to be Yeshua. It's the way, ultimately speaking, we do remember uh, the this expression more than the inspiration. When I mention the context, generally speaking, people don't have an idea what I'm talking about. When you say this Gemara, everybody knows Lo It's not just just mention it more than anything to make clear it's a derasha. Well, that all being the case, again. The question therefore surfaced over the course of time, I'm just going to bring you back a few hundred years where it was most trenchant in terms of its discussion. Uh, So then how is it that we find ourselves surrounded by law and practice which is determined by, not bat kol per se, but revelations of some sort or another. So I'll bring you back some 250 or so years to Maran HaChidar B'Chaim Yosef David Azulai in source number two in his book Shem HaGedolim. This book Shem HaGedolim effectively is uh, short biographies of many of the rabbis that lived up until his time with many interesting takes and spins with regards to their biography, their works, their halachot, and so forth. And in this specific passage, this specific ma'arechet he's dealing with, and we did a full class also during COVID on Zoom, on this issue, called, he's dealing with a book called She'elotu Teshubot Min HaShamayim. It's a book written by Rabbi Yaakov Mimarvez. It was a rabbi from France who lived during the time of the Ba'alei HaTosafot. So you're going back a good 800 or so years. And he, in fact, it's a very slim book. We have it today. He has Teshubot, responsa, which he inquired of the heavens and received answers to. And you'd imagine, all right, so that would be, you know, collecting dust in the back of, I don't know, someone who has a lot of books like me on my bookshelf. Instead, lots of normative practice, and that's what we did a full class to point out how many circumstances were not just you know, buffered by or, or buttressed by the fact that the Shelo Teshubot Min HaShamayim determined this. They were determined by Shelo Teshubot Min HaShamayim. The most famous one, at least for me, is the fact that women making berachah mitzvot aseh gerama. Today, effectively, in our community, most women don't on positive time-bound mitzvot. But for hundreds of years, women, even in the Middle Eastern world, were doing so. And really, if you look at the sourcing on this, it's because Hidar Bihaim Yosef David Azulai finds that contrary to the Pesach of Harambam and Shohan Aru, who both write that women should not be baking a beracha, it's inappropriate. They're not commanded in positive time bound mitzvot. The Gemara in Masechit Kiddushin tells us on Dafkafter that they're not commanded. So why are they making that beracha? Well, Shelot Shabbat Min Hashamayim says so. It means it was a revelation from the heavens, a fascinating thing. Say so it's okay, but it didn't affect us, right? No, in the book Chokhmah Musar, Ham Avraham Antebi, he was the chief rabbi of Halab just over 150, 200 years ago. He writes, many of the women in our community make berachah lulav because of the book of Resh Yud Min HaShamayim. It's referring to the Yaakov of Marvez. Okay, those and many other examples. Says Marana Hita, but wait a second. I myself told you that I'm comfortable determining law. I accept that law has been determined based on this book. How do I rationalize that? And what he suggests, and it's a difficult sell, and he's been critiqued over the course of 200 plus years, he suggests the following. He says, look at the Pesukim at the beginning of this past week's parasha, and we'll come back to several other circumstances in this past week's parasha. I will tell you this was the product of ruminations over Shabbat because of the parasha, this class. But anyways, as the Pesukim at the beginning of the parasha say, uh, in the future, when you have an issue, and you're uncertain how to settle it, you'll go up to the Makom 
Moshev Haradonai, you're going to go up to what we now know as the Makom HaMikdash, and you'll speak to the Kohen, to the Shofet, and they'll tell you the law. Wait a second, so that's what Rahida. He says, that means it's during a time where you have Sanhedrin, we have strong, authoritative figures who are determining law. Then you go up to them and you ask them for the law. Today? Oh, what do we have today? Oh, we have a rabbi here and a rabbi. Oh, we don't have a Ravinan Rabbi. We don't have a Bihuda. We don't have a Sanhedrin. We're not dealing with authoritative figures and individuals like we once did where you would turn to them. Instead, dare I say it like this, God wins today. Once upon a time, if I had an authoritative figure, I had an authoritative body, the Sanhedrin, I had a body of rule, of leadership that would be and could be trusted, then they say, we say, lo they determine the law. When we don't have that any longer, when we're past the time of greats in terms of study and knowledge of Torah and Maran Hachidah's eyes, it's then that we'll turn to, ironically, uh, to the God, godly revelations. We'll say, listen, we no longer are able to do it the way it was supposed to be, so let's take, again, it sounds funny, it sounds ironic, let's take the second option, that is, let's turn to God to determine the law. The first, the first option seems like it has some kind of auspicious you know, place that I choose, and we don't know what the Kohen is going to do, we may, you know, it's not just a, kind of like a... Yeah, it's an uh, interesting point, Gabby. I got you. I got What Gabby is suggesting, contrary to, A, what I said on Friday night from Rabbi Shema, B, what I always say with, you know, in expanding on this point, but I understand your, your reading of it, it says, why are you going? Why was the Sanhedrin placed on this place where God chose? And why are you just turning to a judge or turning to the Kohen? He's suggesting, I wouldn't use the word auspicious, mysterious. There's something mysterious to it. In other words, you're, so to speak, turning to God over there. Alternatively, what, what Rabbi Shema has suggested, what many others I've, I've discovered over time, he was the first to introduce. All right, the story is worth it for how he introduced this thought to me. I was, I've said it more than once, but I, it was Parashat Pinehaz, I believe, and I was talking about Pinehaz's reward. It was a derashah, and I was very proud of my derashah that Shabbat. I said, Pinehaz gets rewarded kehuna. Kehuna for what? Because he speared two individuals? That's not what I associate with kihuna. Kihuna is something altogether different. I know it's slaughtering, it's slaughtering animals, not going at people, it's not that sort of involvement. All right, so I had my dirasha, whatever my dirasha was. That se'udah shilishit, uh, that Shabbat, so Rabbi Shema got up and he said, I'd just like to talk about what the role of the Kohanim was in the eyes of Sefer Devarim. That's why I learned this lesson from him. So he, he pointed to several pisukim, and one of them being the beginning of this week's parasha, in which the Kohanim emerge as the educators of the people, which means to say the fact that it's in Makom HaMikdash is not by mistake and not per se for the mystery, it's more because that's where you're going to find your leaders, that's where you're going to find your educators. So yes, it's going to be a Shofet and it's going to be a Kohen, you look at the end of the parasha when we have Igla Arufa, that should be the job of the leaders of the people, the educators of sort, the Kohanim are there as well. It's less mysterious, it's more the vision, we did a class earlier this summer from that Pasuk in Malachi, quote in the Gemara in Masechet Higa, Hagiga. Uh, with regards to the Kohen being like the Malach Hashem Sevakot, Yivakshu Mipiu, Yichokmai Yivakshu, you're going to be requesting knowledge from the Kohen. All right, so anyway, that being the case, and, and, and I say that in this context as well, that's Marana Hida's claim. Yes, John. Interesting thing, we go that far back, we discussed in the Parashah this past week, is that we don't know what process they actually used. We don't know what they actually used. And they were 
examples in the Hamash and in the Navi where there was a mystical or a direct Ruach Kodesh aspect of Allah, Moshe Rabbeinu, Eliyah Kohen deciding what Hamas status was using the Umim and Tumim. Indeed. So they're not entirely divorced back then either. I like the direction the class is going in already, but I'm still I'm going to circle you, both of you back, even though I'm going to admit to both of you to a certain extent to our first source. Our first source is telling us, Lo Bashamayimi. Oh, you're right. Uh, okay, and it's, it's more than it's questions on Chita, but okay. That's the first classical approach to this matter. Second classical approach to this matter, also uh, written with a critique over the course of the last 150 so years, 170 years since it was written. It's in She'elot Tishbot Hatam Sofir in source number three. He makes the following difficult, hard to understand, at least to me, distinction. He says it's a difference between when we talk about someone like Ariza or Bitzhat Luria, between the revelations that he had from Eliyahu Hanavi, not in dreams, he suggests, uh, but rather in the flesh, and revelations from Eliyahu when it, so to speak, comes from the heavens. So when it's in flesh, when there was an Eliyahu who's sitting in front of Bitzhat Luria, as it were, uh, well, then that is a ba'aretz. That's a, that's a revelation which is not from might be coming from the heavens, but it's found in this world. As opposed to when there's no flesh which covers uh, those words and, and, and revelations and messages of Eliyahu Navi. Of course, difficult in its own right, but that's his suggestion with regards to these particulates. Not really going to help you all that much. And he admits it with uh, being posek halakha from dreams. It's not going to help you with many of the cases in Zohar where there seem to be spirits who are, who are um, enhancing the vision and understanding of the rabbis. All right, so those are two of the attempts. Again, I'm telling you more than anything, what we're up against is this is just what has been done. I know we're tracing backwards and saying, so why have we been doing this? Why have we been turning to Kabbalah? And if we don't have any sufficient answer, I would suggest we change it. We need to change it. There's been enough literature over the course of the last many, many years to suggest that we have directions just like anything else. You can make claims, you can rationalize. I'm sorry, the, curse, the R curse word, as, as Gabby told me, but you could rationalize. And, and I'd like to bring us to one um, which, uh, uh, which to me has a certain depth to it and try to develop it together with you, even if it doesn't convince you with regards to the approach to Pesach Halakha. I hope it will inspire you to, you to a certain understanding of Torah and Halakha. It's found most recently in Shailu this is written by Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Hillel. Rabbi Hillel is still alive, he's a contemporary rabbi. He's a Rosh Yeshiva Yeshivat Ahavat Shalom in Jerusalem. And uh, he's a Mikubal of sorts, or not of sorts, he's a Mikubal. He's well versed in Kabbalah. He's written prolifically about Kabbalah. And uh, he's, he's even written books about uh, dangers of those who, pro- who purport to be Kabbalists and who are promising all sorts of things and are using some sort of active Kabbalah and so forth. He's an interesting person, Rabbi. In his own respect, you can have the opportunity to meet him because I think he's in New York and New Jersey more than he's in Jerusalem. But that's Rabbi Hillel. So Rabbi Hillel makes the following suggestion. He writes, Ki ha-chiluk ha-kodesh all right, a few, I typed it a little early this morning. 
it distinguishes between what he calls nevuah and ruach hakodesh. Those are words that are often interchanged. Harambam in his Moren Vuchim looks to and seeks to try to distinguish between the two. And his suggestion, and we'll have to develop this on our own separately, is that there's a difference between nevuah and ruach hakodesh. Nevuah comes outside of the context of study, of traditional thought. It's an inspiration which comes from the outside, whereas Ruach HaKodesh, which we look at as more worldly, perhaps lower in terms of its uh, inspiration and revelation, that comes through the clothing of Torah. What he's suggesting then goes as follows. There's a difference between being inspired in a dream, being inspired from some heavenly voice, and being inspired while reading the text. In internalizing the text, thinking about it, and then having a spark of revelation. That second one is what he calls Ruach HaKodesh. That second mode is what he says is appropriate with regards to determining Halakha. The Gemara that we began with, the many claims of Loba Shamaimi, is when it comes external. It's not from the Gufei HaTorah. It's not from the study and my own personal, our collective endeavor in the Torah. That, when it does come in such a fashion, what he's calling Ruach HaKodesh, then he suggests it's appropriate as a mode and method to determining normative practice. I'd like to spend a few moments developing this approach. And it begins with the following from this past week's parasha. Again, very briefly what we're up against. We're trying to understand a method to, not madness, to the reality of determining law based on revelations, which has been done. What we're suggesting at this juncture is that if it comes by means of the study, by means of the natural, personal, creative endeavor of the Torah, I can nonetheless say, and I think we've all in our own lives, we might not call it Ruach HaKodesh, but we've had a spark, a flash of inspiration. That's what we can call Ruach HaKodesh. He says, then, and specifically then, that's how this Nistar, the world of Torah, has, has affected us. Go ahead. Well, that, that is biased and completely traditional. Absolutely. His claim is, on this, in this respect, you won't, be, of course, it, it's, it, there's a certain danger to it, says Gabby, but there's a danger to any of this. What does this mean? This means hidden. hidden. It's not an objective, you know. Uh, Correct. Correct. It's not something that just emanated from the heavens. That's right. Correct. Correct. And his suggestion, that's right. And that's his suggestion as to when we talk about this. That's right. Okay, so I, can we guess? Yes, yes. No, not really. Because uh, the Gureha Ari do not distinguish. My guess is Rabbi Labaton was influenced on this by Hacham Ovadia Yosef. That is his methodology very clearly. Outside of that, in the world of much of the practice, outside of the Hacham, and even some in the Hacham Vatya, we've done a few of these. I will, we'll have to discuss the specifics, and I'm not going to tell you it's always going to be consistent. What I will tell you is you will find outside of the domain and realm of, uh, of tefillah uh, um, uh, where Kabbalah has trumped what we call nigle, the regular methodology. We have found it. I'm not, I'm not taking a claim in this class with regards to what it should have been. 
just accepting what it has been and trying to understand and make some sense of that. So I give the following uh, example with regards to maybe internalizing at least the traditional vision in this respect. It's a tough one. Let me preface with that. The law is difficult to begin with. The explanation might be even more difficult. I remember being taught this in 10th grade by Rabbi Prague and it be bothering me very much, but it goes like this. The Torah in this past week's parasha talks about a concept known as Edim Zomimim. Much of the first chapter of Masech and Makot is dedicated to Edim Zomimim. What are Edim Zomimim? It's the following, according to the rabbis, narrow situation. It's a circumstance where two witnesses are caught to be lying. Not that they were lying based on circumstantial evidence. Not that, uh, well, they claimed uh, A killed B, but uh, B is still alive, or A with none of that. It's rather that they're caught and they're displaced. They claimed they were in Times Square and saw the murder on September 4th, whereas we have evidence from two other witnesses who say on September 4th, you weren't in Times Square, you were in Israel, you were in Japan with us, you had no way of being there. That's Edim Zomimim. What's the law with regards to punishing them? The Torah says in past week's parashah, you do to them as they conspire to do to the other. Well, that being the case, uh, we can maybe wrap our head around some of the logic and rationale over here. It's where you come to the Gemara in source number six on Makot without the Derashot for our purposes right now, but the bottom line, the Gemara says it goes like this. There was a Mahloket between the Sidukim, the Sadducees, and the Pirushim, the traditionalists with regards to our Torah Baalpeh. What's the status of the following situation? Two witnesses testify about A, that he killed B, and they get A killed based on their testimony. After him being killed, after he's killed, they're then found to be false conspiring witnesses. Do you now kill them in that situation or only and specifically before they had him killed? The halakha is it's only when they were conspiring and hadn't yet done it. She in this past week's parasha says, uh, uh, One second, why so? And the Gemara has such a claim. The Gemara cites a Biraita, Birbi says this, and his father asks him, Does it make sense? If they actually got the guy killed, you don't kill them? It's only when they almost got the guy killed? One more time, they're conspiring witnesses to get someone killed. If they didn't get him killed, then they get caught. Oh, in that situation, they get killed. They got him killed! I'm sorry, we can't kill you. you won't kill the witnesses in that circumstance, but that's the halakha. That's the halakha without a good rationale in the Gemara. The Gemara says, don't get logical over here. When it comes to death penalties, we don't use that sort of human logic. Can you give me something over here? I mean, this is the Torah we're talking about. This is about sentencing to death in one situation, but not in the other. Ramban Nachmani, in his commentary to the Torah, to this past week's parasha, has the following suggestion. It's in source number seven. It goes as follows. He says, we accept, based on several pesukim in the Torah based on a certain tradition that the judges that we have representing us in Jewish courts are working not just their own logic and their own methods and determinations and procedures, they're working with God as they do so. And the Spirit of God, suggests Ramban Nachmani, is present as they are dealing with the Beit Din's procedures. Therefore, if they did put this guy to death, even though afterwards the witnesses come and counter that first set of witnesses, we claim something wasn't wrong over here. It could not and would not have been that the first set of witnesses were accepted to the extent that the judges would sentence him and put him to death 
had that not been God's will. Well, it's like an amazing... It's infallibility of a pope. Saying the judges no, because his fate was that he killed anyway. Right. So, not me, not I, I'd, like, I'd like to keep the Pope out of this. I would like to instead. No, no, it's okay. Again, keep in mind, keep in mind there's a full procedure over here. And keep in mind further, there is punishment nonetheless. But that is the claim of Ramban. Ramban doesn't just write it over here. He, you should know Maharal in source number eight gets very, very disturbed by Ramban. He says it's not a sufficient explanation. Ramban is, is, is uh, consistent with this. And here you are right to a certain extent, David, not with the Pope part, but with the danger of such a thought in source number nine at the beginning of the parasha this past week. The Torah had this statement. Don't veer right or left from the determination of what we call the Sanhedrin, of the highest authorities. And Ramban Nachmani, in the midst of the explaining the rationale and logic to this, of making certain that you turn their way, even in circumstances where it appears to be false or mistaken, says Ramban, most important words are the ones I bolded at the end, Hashem al Mikdasho. The acceptance, the understanding of Ramban Nachmani is that when done with the proper intention, in the proper context, following the laws of the Torah, there is a presence of God. Now, why do I mention these sources specifically? Again, spiritual, out there, hard to rationalize and to put to some sort of set and reason and certainly not something empirically uh, proven. Why do I mention these? I mention these in the context of what we've been discussing when something, going back to the She'elot Tishbot Vayashov Hayam, when something is through the methods of our own creative, within the structure of Torah procedures, when it's done in such a fashion, we have traditionally accepted God's promise that he's present there. Elohim Elohim God is present in the Betin to some respect. If you're doing it, it has to begin with your, what we called Ruach HaKodesh earlier, you're studying the Torah. Now there was that flash of inspiration, accept that as a divine inspiration. If you're believing alternatively that it's coming from the outside without putting together the betin, without determining, well, that's where we'd say lo bashamaymi, which means to say, as I understand it, and I'll try to develop this from some other sources together with you, the vision of the rabbis or the vision of our tradition to a certain extent is not to place God at the center of the determination of our practice, but it is to place him as part of the determination. Whereas some will tell you, well, the whole system was built and is determined and governed by God, the Gemara says to us, lo where others will claim, no, it's fully sociological and determined by the people and it's divorced of God and there's no God to be found in the system. It's a nice community norm. I think there's sourcing and grounding to make the claim that, no, no, he's a part of this. It might be a silent part of it. It might be that when we're doing this properly, we're being inspired appropriately in one way or another in ways, of course, that we couldn't prove. But that's the direction with regards to when we would say Shamaim has that aid. Take you forward to source number 11, a favorite source of mine. From the day of destruction of the Mikdash, Nevoah prophecy was taken from the prophets 
and awarded instead to the wise people. Says the Gemara. What's that? First Beit Mikdash, certainly. Says the Gemara, correct. Atu hacham lav naviu. Says the Gemara. Oh, one second. The, the, the wise ones didn't have prophecy before it. Hachikamar afal pishenitilam in the neviim. Once upon a time, prophets had it and wise people had nevuah. Well, they have the structure of the Mikdash. The prophets lost it and the wise people maintained it. Oh, one second. Are you telling me nevuah is present today? Oh, when did that get lost? Says Ramban, our same Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, in his commentary to the Gemara there in source number 12. We may have lost the visual side of prophecy. That of the scholars, of the wise ones. Writes Ramban Nachmani, we've lost one mode of prophecy. That was the mode of prophecy of sight, of spectacle, of what we envision, what we've been taught as children is nevoah. That may have been lost from days of Shaksh and the Mikdash. We don't have a Yeshaya and a Yehezkel any longer. What we have maintained is the Chokhmah of Ruach HaKodesh. It's the inspiration of God, the intellectual, the Chokhmah inspiration, which comes forth through proper thinking, straight thought. That's the suggestion of Ramban to this Gemara. The Gemara continues in source number... Okay. So, when you say the word HaKodesh, the guy is saying something, and we don't know why he said it. All right. Okay. It's, it, 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 you're only supporting the Ezra, because it needs to be working within our structure. If it's not working within our structure, we're going to discount it. Then I don't know that it's Ruach HaKodesh. It needs to have emanated from the, within the structure and methodology that we've set forth. If it's coming externally, if you're just staying, stating, I know this to be true, we're going to discard you. We're going to discredit you. That's the point through and through in all this. And so the Gemara in truth in source number 11 at, in, in the continued lines has the following statement. The Gemara then has this statement in terms of uh, uh, putting both on the scale the prophet is lower on the scale, or is higher on the scale, whatever, is, is weight outweighed by the hacham, says uh, Maharal in his commentary to the Gemara over there. As in source number 13, he says, So the difference between a prophet and a wise person is the wise person can explain it to you. A wise person can, within the structure, through the methodology, explain how they've arrived at this. It might be a flash of inspiration that gave them that interpretive direction, but ultimately speaking, they don't need spectacles in order to prove their point. They don't need something out of the norm, out of what they can then present. That's Maharal's suggestion to the continued words in the Gemara. It's along these lines that we've historically explained the following two strange statements of Ra'avad, or seemingly strange statements of Ra'avad, in source 14 and 15. The context in each, not necessary for our class right now, but two very famous statements, Ra'avad. Ra'avad was a rabbi from 
southern France from, uh, from Provence, from Pasquier, uh, and he, of course, has his glasses to Harambam. Harambam's Mishneh Torah is always, uh, generally speaking, accompanied by the glasses of Ra'avad. Now, Ra'avad was from uh, southern France, so they're a little bit more mystically inclined, so he was a little bit more mystically inclined, but in his writings on Harambam, you don't find any mysticism other than two unique circumstances. The first is in Perek Hetav Hilchot Lulav. He's dealing with a specific case, Hadash Niktam Rosho, the Halacha, not relevant to us. He writes the following, Kvar Hofia Ruach HaKodesh Bebet Midrashenu Mikamashanim. You should know we've had divine inspiration in our Midrash for several years with regards to this law. Again, he does in Perek Vav Hilchot Beta Bechira in the context of Kedushat Eretz Yisrael, whether it's Kedushat Le'atid Lavo or not. The specifics not important right now. He writes with regards to his opinion, This was revealed to me from the grandeur of God to those who fear him and have the proper awe. He's talking, he seems to be talking about some sort of prophecy. Is he really proud of that? And in truth, he was put down afterwards by several of the hachamim with regards to arguing the case of Harambam. It's a nice claim, but if he can't prove it, just talking about Ruach HaKodesh isn't going to bring forth any support for you. Hatam Sofer alternatively in Source 16 says, you're misunderstanding Ra'avad. Ra'avad meant the same thing that we've been suggesting and developing until now. To talk about those words, Ruach HaKodesh, is to be talking about something altogether different than the word Nivuah. Nivuah has no place in Halakha. Nivuah is the out of the regular methodological and structural approach to life. Something came externally, inspired me, we don't practice based on that. If alternatively you were in the sugya, you were developing it from the sources, from the methodology, from the understanding of circumstances, context, and so forth. And then there was a flash of inspiration. That's what we call Ruach HaKodesh. When he talks about his Ruach HaKodesh, he's not referring to a dream of some sort or another. He's rather referring to his development of this and then feeling, and appropriately, I would argue, the aid of God in it. Uh, continuing in, the, in, in our development, our suggestion of uh, appreciating Torah and and development of knowledge in general. I speak beyond just the course and, and specific black and white letters of Torah. I talk about knowledge in general. When a person, when we feel that flash of inspiration, we have one of two options. We can either chalk it up to some sort of subconscious inspiration, which somehow resurfaced in this moment. Alternatively, I can, and I would be appropriate in saying, that was a divine inspiration. Does that mean God was with you in that moment, zapping you? You need not argue that in order to argue this concept of if God is the embodiment, as Harambam philosophically discusses, at great length of knowledge as it is, well, that was a divine inspiration. That's going to be the direction through and through, at least in my mind, for rationalizing, explaining, and understanding this acceptance of some mystical involvement with regards to determining normative practice along these lines. The Gemaran Masechet Sanhedrin, we learned uh, some, some weeks ago, and Dafkof Aleph has the following difficult to understand, certainly in the certainly not practiced very often. Yaakov Shweki certainly was not doing this one a few nights ago. If you read a pasuk from Shir Hashirim, by extension, any other pasuk, it's even Shir Hashirim writes Rashi, because even Shir Hashirim, which is a song to begin with, and you make it into a song, 
My goodness, my daughters and wife went to it. They were a part of bringing ra'ala olam. I'm joking, not for real. Because the Torah is wearing second cloth in such a moment. And is expressing, Your children have made me like a harp as a way of just bringing music to themselves. Just this? At the beginning, I, because he's, I mean, listen, even before Shlomo Karlbach, this was practice. Maybe he was the one who began to proliferate it and popularize it. But this, this, this is, if we read it in its literal sense, the claim against the whole industry. Alternatively, there's something that underlies it with regards to a certain philosophical notion. Uh, for example, writes Maharal in his Hidushe Agadot here in source number 18. He says, Says Maharal, there's a distinction to be made between thought, introspection, and speech. Speech is externalizing. Thought is internalizing, taking it a step further in the footnotes to Maharal in his Netiv HaTorah, in source number 19, Rabbi Hartman cites from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro the following interpretation. He says it goes like this, Torah should be at its core something that we receive, something that we listen carefully to. When I'm in tune with the world around me, when I'm seeking truth, when I'm listening to the words that are being read to me, when I'm internalizing them and looking for inspiration, that's ideal Torah. When alternatively, I'm seeking to express the Torah with my tune, with my version, with my articulation. That's where I'm diverging from the proper path. The Gemara then, read in such a way, goes as follows. If you've turned Torah into something that is akin to your language, your way of expressing, instead of something that you're listening carefully for, that you're listening to to the extent that you want to be inspired by its knowledge, that you're reading with a somewhat of an unbiased approach to it, that's when it's hoged and so forth. Along those lines as well, Rav Hutner in source number 20 in his book on Hanukkah and Pachad Yitzchak says that's the difference between a Navi and a Hacham. Whereas a Navi's job is to speak to others, a Navi is supposed to report the knowledge, a Hacham is supposed to study and accept the knowledge. I bring you back to everything we've been discussing and developing, and I, and I suggest to you, the knowledge of Torah, if appropriately developed and understood, is one which I've studied, I've understood, I've analyzed, I've experienced, and then perceived. That's Chochmat Torah. That's what we're likening to Ruach HaKodesh. If it's alternatively something that was inspired externally, something that I'm inspiring with my speech or with my manipulation, that's where it's wrongfully approached. Along these lines is a well-known midrash, which in fact Targum Unkulus seems to support in his commentary to Parashat Vayet Hanan. The Pesukim describe Ma'amad Har Sinai, Moshe does, Et ha-divarim ha-elleh, in divarim perekeh, Diber Adonai el kol ke'alchem bahar mitoch ha-esh he'anan v'ha'arafel, kol gadol v'lo yasaf. The Pasuk says that it was a, la- a great, grand, grand sound, Veloyasaf, and now those last enigmatic, mysterious words, Veloyasaf, can be interpreted in one of two ways. Veloyasaf means it never continued, lehosif, 
or alternatively, lo yasaf means it never ended. Says Unculus, la pasik, it never ended. Never ended, what are you suggesting? The suggestion of taken to its, 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 uh, its uh, logical conclusion is that the sound of Sinai is still reverberating. What are you talking about? You have many midrashim which suggest that if you listen carefully, you'll still sound, hear the sound of Sinai. What are you talking about? I mean, seriously? Are we going to go into the desert and, and train our ears to listen for this? Alternatively, it's the continued revelation. It's the knowledge which we continuously and creatively uncover. That's what's tapping back into Ruach HaKodesh of Torah. Yes, yes. Okay. There's no room for radical change at all. In other words, it's outside thing we create, and they, they can't constrain how much leeway there is. They're funneling it through. There's never going to be room for nivua. There's right. never going to be something radical that won't conform to a certain structure of Torah. That's right. There is life has radically changed. Um, I guess we'd have to discuss that with a sociologist or anthropologist to determine that. Um, you know, because I've done a little bit. Um, the, other day I was in a class, the other day I was in a class with young boys. They were 17 and 18 years old. And they were very, very inspired. And the rabbi was going through Harambam with them and how everything has to be focused on Hashem and everything they can do. You wake up in the morning. I mean, Harambam lived in the 12th century, 12th century, you know, and, and uh, you know, nobody left their house more than 30 miles, and people thought about the big question all day, they worked three hours on the farm, you just can't oh, so expect I, a kid to feel like he's, he's on course, you know. But I, but I don't think that's a radical change, I think that's a coordinate change. I think we're still centering around fundamentals. I think we're appreciating them and addressing them in different ways. Not the way it was taught. Okay, okay. Oh, I'm not there. I, don't, I, was, I wasn't in that class, oh, but what I can't, I, well, I certainly wasn't teaching it. Learn Harambam, which is, you know, an ancient, you know, text for a time. Learning Harambam in a vacuum. Yes. Learning it without finding its relevancy to today means failing, certainly. But I'm not. Yeah, but, but you but, may be apologizing all the way through it. You might be. You might be. I'd, I'd want you not to be. And if you would be, then I would tell you. Then it's inappropriate. I'd like to say, and I, I, I accept a certain continuity of knowledge with regards to if it was pristine knowledge at its core no, to finding said, a certain. It was divinely inspired. True. Then. So so that circles us back to again, true knowledge being divinely inspired throughout, even for you and me. It sounds, and it is very spiritual, but I think it's a reality. And I think that's what the Hakamim are constantly speaking about. And again, it need not be in a trans-like state. It, it alternatively, in a Ruach HaKodesh state, means that I'm developing this appropriately. I'm working through, and then there is, listen, I, you, you read, you know, the Havdil, you read Einstein's uh, philosophic, semi-philosophical works, uh, well, essays. And he talks about that bolt. He talks about how he can't explain it. He was not. He was no God-fearing individual. The, day, the people don't accept it. Like, what's going to determine whether or not? Right. Agreed. So that you're right. Today, people are not accepting it. You are right, Gabby. So that taps us back into the question of what will ultimately speaking determine what's done, and that's going to be a communal acceptance. My question in the class is accepting that presence and now saying, 
once we have accepted it, can we make some sense of this? Is there something to be derived and understood from it? That's what I'm suggesting. I'll conclude with the following thought from source number 25 and onward. Uh, we'll skip for the moment 23 and 24. It's along the same lines of that Kol Gadol Velo Yasaf, one from Avodat HaKodesh, Bimeir Ibn Gabay, one from Midrash in source number 23. But here's what I would like to, to, to suggest. And, and it, go, it comes back to what I spoke about very briefly at Se'udah Shilishit yesterday. And it's, it's the vision, as I understand it, of the Torah from Sefer Devarim and onward. You see, the Torah takes a little bit of a turn, whereas in the desert, this is an idea which is developed in my mind first by Nitziva Velazhin in his commentary to the Torah Ha'amek Davar, uh, but by others along the way. Most recently I was reading on Shabbat, the first portion of this will come from a book called On uh, Sefer Devarim, by, recently published by Rabbi Tamir Granot, I think is his name. But it goes like this, the question is with regards to our trajectory, our direction through life, how is it that we traverse the difficulties, the questions, the uncertainties of life? Uh, so let's, let's look back to our first encounter of freedom as a nation. And Torah tells us that the, in, in Shemot Perek Yod Gimon, source number 25, Parashat God is preceding them. God would be preceding us. It means we're following his lead. Uh, along those lines, the Pesukim in uh, Parashat Beha'alot Echad describe how the Aaron in source number 26 was uh, would precede us. Moshe would get up and imagine the scene, the first of the 40 years in the desert, and you have to imagine throughout their travels in the desert, Moshe would get up and say, he would declare, he'd pray, he'd exclaim, God, you come out in front of us. Let our enemies disperse. Clear the way for us. Who were we as a nation for 40 years in the desert? We were followers. We were followers of a God who would present us with the future opportunities which we'd walk right into. And then you get to year 40. And we're on the brinks of entrance into the land of Israel. And two tribes, Benegad and Reuven, turn to Moshe and they want to settle outside of Israel. And Moshe makes a deal with them after being very angry with their, with their suggestion and their, and their uh, request. And he says to them, here's my deal. If you'll be, uh, he says to them, if you will go, kol halutz la milhama lifne Adonai. If you will precede God, in the battle in the land of Canaan, well, then you can settle out. Precede God. Sounds semi-heretical. shalom, it's Moshe. But what type of talk is that? Moshe is talking about them preceding God? I thought we follow God. Here is year 40. The road ahead is one in which we now trailblaze, bring it back to our class throughout. We now, the perspective, the approach to knowledge, to development is one in which it's person governed. It's governed by the people. That means, and along those lines, in this past week's parasha again, the pasuk has the Kohen talking to the people before going out to war. God will be with you, not in front of you. Who are you as a people? What's our job now? To be inspired by God as leading us? To be inspired by God through Nivua, or alternatively, 
to take the leap, to determine the law, but to accept that God is present as we're determining it. It's along these lines, and I'll conclude with this, that I understand the words of the Torah and Parashat Pinechas, read at the beginning of the summer, will come full circle in terms of our Kiryah this summer. Here was the circumstances, the appointment of Yehoshua. Yehoshua is the next leader of the people after Moshe. And Moshe requests of God, we need the right person. He's going to need to be a person. Effectively, he's going to be a warrior. He'll fight the wars. He'll be our leader in conquering the land. That's who we need. He'll go in front of us, not the Aharon. Great, we got that vision. God says, wish granted, Yehoshua. But as Yehoshua is now going to be granted that opportunity to lead the people, says God, the end of source number 29, He will stand in front of Elazar, the next Kohen Gadol, He will speak to Elazar, the Kohen Gadol, who will in turn consult with the Urim Vetumim, a way of convening with the mystical, divine realm in a more direct fashion. Wait a second. You just told me that our entrance into the land is going to be one and divorced of those miracles. We're now pushing this forward. The Torah is balancing this for us. It goes as follows. Again, the full picture. He's still with us. He's no longer... I'm taking this to Nivuah hundreds of years later, but I'm placing it beforehand in the battles in the land versus the Midbar. I'm likening, in other words, the Midbar to pre-destruction of the Mikdash with regards to knowledge. It means there's a new, there's a transition. Whereas in the past, it was, so to speak, the Nivuah. It was the God preceding us. It was the following his lead. It was the Bashamayim he existence. It's now lo bashamayim. Lo bashamayim means now we're divorced from God. Now Yehoshua determines without that help and aid of God. Certainly not. You're still turning to the Urim Vitumim to the extent that I just taught and learned this Gemara a few weeks ago. Again, the Gemara in Masechet Berachot has this funny, unless you pay careful attention and appreciate it, description of David HaMelech. So the Hakamim are imagining and they make remazim in the Pesukim about how David used to determine how to go to war. Gemara in Davgimal, right at the beginning. Amalehem is the People turn to David in the middle of the night and they say, we don't have any money and we can't raise it. We don't have the money to raise it from people. So what are we going to do? We have to go fight. David would say to his legions, to his army soldiers, so go ahead and fight. Make money through fighting, through war against others. Miyad, immediately, they would immediately, says the Gemara, consult with the, the, uh, the consultant of David, Ahitofil. He was the Yo'itz of the Melech. He was the Jain who had to do these things. All right, that makes sense. Then they would turn to the Sanhedrin. Also makes sense. You want the authority of the high court. And lastly, they would turn to the Urim Vitumim, which means to say much as the Yehoshua perspective, much as the Chochmata Torah perspective, it began with our determination. This is going to be our war. This is what we need to do. This is going to be my development of the Halakha together with you. Certainly, but... We're not going to divorce, it's an important point because in the past, I say this carefully and, and specifically in the past as we've discussed halakha, people have asked the question, so where does God come in? 
he comes in the same way that God came in in the conquest and conquering of the land of Israel. They say, oh, I was divorced of God. Isn't that the picture? You no. Do you know what happened in Yeriho? In Yeriho, we circled the city seven times and then the walls fell. But wait a second. Whereas in the desert, the vision is God proceeded and knocked them out without our circling. In Yeriho, at Yeriho, we circled and then it fell. That's how I understand halakha as well. If halakha is developed, if Torah is understood through our own capacities, with our own minds and our own generations and contexts and faculties and utilities, then and only then with the addition of flashes of inspiration of what we call Ruach HaKodesh, is there room for an enmeshment of Bashamayim. This is not meant to negate the Hacham approach and all those others. It's to rationalize and understand and get some sort of philosophical bedrock and foundation for appreciating what we have done. It's terrible, some will claim. How could we ever give credence to the words of mysticism? It has no place in a sociological communal practice of Torah. Alternatively, if it was done within the context, within the venues of the academy of study of Torah, if it was done, yes, Gabby, within the con constraints and the, and the confines of a traditional approach, but within that, the creative flash of inspiration, then and specifically then, as Rabbi Yaakov, Moshe Hillel, and many of the other sources I hope developed for us, there was and is an appropriate nature of engagement and, and a necessary engagement with the, with the numinous, with the, with the, with the divine in, in accepting that, yes, this is what we're doing. This is our battle in the land, but we must accept and understand that God is immachem. He might not be lifanenu any longer. We might not have that nevuah, but the Ruach HaKodesh is ever-present. Baruch Adonai